Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 29. Today we have a guest who has come back to um, visit us and from episode 19 we spoke with Graham Phillips. Graham was recommended to us by Chris Barkley from episodes 6 and 7 and we decided when he was on the last time that he had lots of in-depth knowledge and we wanted to take some deeper dives into some topics and Graham wanted to talk to you about seed oils. So Louise do you want to tell us a bit about Graham? Great. So Graham Phillips is Bachelor of Pharmacy and the Fellow of the Royal Society of Pharmacists, is a second-generation community pharmacist. He describes himself as the pharmacist who gave up drugs. Having played very senior leadership roles in the pharmacy profession, he became disillusioned with the NHS one-size-fits-all approach to healthcare, with his emphasis on waiting for symptoms to arise before treating, suppression, them with drugs. He pioneered a new approach using his scientific knowledge, clinical expertise and new technology which has resulted in the Pro Longevity Service. You can find more details at www.prolongevity.co.uk. The Pro Longevity program helps people who want to lose weight, improve well-being and avoid and reverse diabetes by using new technology to monitor real-time blood sugar levels. They provide a personalised service based on your data to help you make changes to your diet and lifestyle. They avoid traditional approaches that treat symptoms after the damage has been done. Prevention is better than a cure. Graham has two sons, one who is also a pharmacist and the other a corporate lawyer. He lives with his partner Karen, a GP who is also passionate about lifestyle medicine in North London. Like Jackie, Graham is also an ambassador for the Public Health Collaboration UK. He believes the world has become dominated by big food on the one hand, which makes you sick, and big pharma on the other, that makes you 10% better. In the end, he believes that science must prevail. So should we go over and listen to the interview? Yeah, it was great. We really enjoyed having him back on the show. Welcome back, Graham, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you back with us. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. You haven't had enough of me after the first one. <laughs> Lovely well, to be back. <laughs> you had so much interesting information to tell us about that we said, well, let's do another one. Yeah, yeah, I've become a bit evangelistic about all this stuff. It's true. It is hard not to be evangelistic, isn't it? Well, you know, that's why I call myself the pharmacist that gave up drugs because all those years, you know, stuffing tablets into people. Okay. I mean, that's probably unfair, but because drug medicine's important and it saves many lives. But when I looked at the fact that people just never got better and this new pathway, I could see people improving literally week by week in front of my eyes and I'm busy de-prescribing. Um, you can't unlearn this stuff and you can't unsee it as a, as a health professional, as a practitioner, once, once you've observed it in your own practice, you just, you just can't go back. No, absolutely. And that's the same with everything in life, isn't it? Once you, yeah. It's fine when you don't know about it, but once you know about it, you can't not know mm -hmm. it. Just wish I'd known sooner, mm. to be honest. I could have done a lot more good, but hey-ho. Yeah. Well, we can't live our life with regrets, and you know, <laughs> Graham is here now. Um, and as Jackie said, we made a list, and it's all we're going to check it twice, but today we want to focus you, if you can, if you will, please, on seed oils. So the flavour for today's um, 
episode, we wanted to sort of obviously focus on what the good, the bad and the ugly is for for your health um, in relation to sea oil. So why don't you start a little bit on why and what and how, I suppose, about sea oils? Sure. So um, if you just... If you want to dive deeply into this, then I would recommend two things. One is to follow Nina Teicholz, who wrote the definitive book on it. Um, and she's got, you know, there's loads of YouTubes and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, the other one is Chris Kenobi, who's an optometrist. Um, and they're the experts, I'm not. So I, a lot of what I'm going to say, I've basically learned from these guys and my own research. Um, and also, uh, Ivor Cummins has put out some fantastic stuff. But the brief history is this. Back in the day uh, when uh, cloth was universally man-made, um, seeds, uh, cotton seeds were just left over at the end. And they worked out that by industrial processing, and I'm talking incredible industrial processing, they could produce a machine oil from the seeds. And that kind of oil was, was useful, for example, for lamp lighting or for um, lubricants. Hmm. And of course, two things happened. One was that uh, we're increasingly not using man-made fibres anymore. And also Edison came, on and wrecked, uh, came along and wrecked their business model because they didn't <laughs> need lamp lighting anymore because we had, guess what, electric light bulbs. Yeah. And so they were thinking, well, we've still got all these incredible numbers of seeds left over. What can we do with them? And the brief history of Crisco is, is quite interesting. A German chemist was uh, commissioned to produce um, a specialized oil for German diesel submarines. And that was the beginnings of Crisco. And he was successful. So he managed to, by industrial extraction, I'm talking about incredible levels of processing. If you ever go have the chance to either have a look on the internet or actually drive past um, a seed oil processing plant, it looks like a petroleum processing plant. I mean, it's incredible. High pressures, industrial extractions, methylation, chlorination. I mean, it's, it's very similar processes. They do, they degum it, don't they? And it's, it's neutralize it, bleach yeah. it, deodorize yeah. it. Yeah, all of this. And in fact, if you, if you have a look um, um, on my Facebook, uh, Wellness with Pro Prolongevity Facebook page, I don't know if we can link with that in the yep. program notes. I did a, a talk about it, and I start off with a video about how these seed oils are produced. And the, and, the, and the American at the end of it says how healthy they are. And you're thinking, what? You go through all of this chemical processing, and it's healthy? You know, <laughs> hey-ho. Um, so... Um, the problem was this. There were, I think there were only a small number of German submarines, so it wasn't really a business model. Um, so this guy sold Crisco to um, actually a British company, and they were soap makers. And they worked out that they could make soap from the, um, the highly industrialized uh, processed oils, and they were going to make their fortune from Crisco soap. But there was another problem, which was a, the market was quite small and most people in those days made their own soap. So mm. it bombed. So in the end, long story short, they sold uh, Chris Go On to Procter & Gamble. Now, it was quite interesting. So this is the point where Ansel Keys once again rears his ugly head. So Ansel Keys did a couple of things. Do you remember Ansel Keys was the diet heart hypothesis and... Um, um, the rest, as they say, is history. I'm sure you act lyrical about this on the pod podcast. Yeah. And Ansel Keys is on the board of Procter & Gamble. And um, Procter & Gamble, through Ansel Keys, uh, uh, approached the American Heart Association and offered them, I think in 1930, 35, something like that, £20 million then, wow. on the basis that they would say that uh, these industrialized, industrial processed oils were heart healthy. Now, it's quite interesting. If you go back in history, for example, Boston 100 years ago, there were no cardiologists. Why do you think that was? Because no one had, no one had heart disease. Yeah. There was but no heart disease. There was no diabetes. It, it didn't exist. Yeah. And all, almost no health professionals, myself included, know this because we're surrounded by this tsunami of cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, hypertension, overweight. 
And we've seen it growing steadily and we all think, oh, it's too many calories and, and all of that stuff. But none of us know the history of it. Um, and uh, Chris Kenobi's presentation is absolutely fabulous, actually, because he and I've just finished reading his book. Because there's a complete parallel between um, cardiovascular disease, diabetes and all these Western uh, modern diseases, modern society and macular degeneration. Right. And macular degeneration now, I think, is the leading cause of blindness in westernized, industrialized societies. Yeah. And what Chris has done is he's been able to track the history. His, his book is, um, I wouldn't say it's the easiest read, but it's worth doing battle with it. He's tracked the, the history of uh, what they call age-related macular degeneration. And he's, done the, he's debunked the myth that it's age-related. It's only age-related in the sense of if you eat industrialized processed uh, seed oils for a lifetime, that causes the problem. But yeah. essentially, it's just in the eye, the equivalent of cardiovascular disease in any other part of the body. And he's done some, um, oh, what's the word? Um, where they do, not tests. Um, oh, come on, Jackie. Yeah. Clinical trials? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So he's, he's actually shown that the A in, a, in AMD is, is a myth and that macular degeneration is a new disease and that, that the, all the other diseases that we know track together um, and which the majority of us have actually blamed for industrial processing of sugar and carbs is only half the story. Because actually the story begins with the in introduction of seed oils, uh, industrially processed seed oils into the diet. And if you, uh, he's also followed the story of Weston Price was also another fascinating guy. Weston Price was a dentist. And yeah. he traveled the world, um, I think, in, in the early 20th 20. century. Yeah. And he went to all these areas where people lead, led still relatively normal lives. And he visited um, these tribes that still had a healthy lifestyle. All of them at incredible amounts of saturated fat. And again, no discernible heart disease, stroke, cardiovascular disease. None of them were overweight. They're all lean, fit, and healthy. And good teeth. And they had fantastic teeth, the vast majority of them. That's right. The only ones who had poor teeth, they did, there was one area where they had poor teeth, and the reason was they smoked. Hmm. So you can track the history of Western industrial disease over the last more or less 120 years, tracks completely with A, the introduction of seed oils, and then B, the later introduction of incredibly higher, ever higher amounts of sugar and processed carbs in the diet. And um, so it's, it's, it's not one or the other, it's the combination of the two that leads us to where we are. Yeah. So back at Ansel Keys and Procter & Gamble, right? Good old answer, right. keys. Now, in those days, because there was no cardiovascular disease, cardiology wasn't a thing. Um, people did have heart problems, but it was usually due to infection. So the cardiology that we see today, um, heart attacks and strokes, didn't really happen. But they did see small numbers of heart, heart issues where people had got infections, and it was the infections that caused the heart disease. So it's a completely separate thing, and it was tiny numbers. Mm. Um, and I think at those at that guy at that point, you know, um, in the early 20th century, the cardiovascular, the American Cardiovascular uh, Association, American Heart Association, was like three guys in the back of a shed. Because yeah. there's no heart disease, there's, there's no nowhere to go. They were nothing, right? So he handed them this unbelievable amount of money to endorse seed oils, and and that's the history of it. And it's a very similar parallel to the way that the cigarette industry used to promote smoking. Smoke the brand your doctor smokes. And yeah. it's unbelievably corrupt. But it's still, we all know about smoking, don't we, today? And no one would dare promote that. But yes. this whole history of seed oils um, is still unspoken, still unknown. And most health professionals still believe, eat, you know, margarine because it's low in cholesterol, low in calories, blah, de, blah, de, blah, blah. Um, and we've all bought it and none of us know the history, or at least, well, I do now, thanks to these other guys I've mentioned. I'm very pleased that I never bought into margarine ever. I've always had butter. Um, but I used to feel guilty about it because I used to think, oh, this is not the right thing to have. It's not good for me. I should be having 
should be eating margarine, but I just never, ever liked the taste of it. So I never went with it. Yeah, well, for years, you know, I, I, I didn't eat red meat for years, right? Everything was low, uh, low, low fat, so it was high carb. I mean, I completely bought into all this stuff and all the statins, you know, there were magic bullets. It's only in the last um, five years of, uh, of my reawakening and re-education that I've completely changed what I do. And of course, trying to explain this to, so I've got a lot of health professional clients and actually, it's a lot harder to get health professional clients to buy into this than my non-health professional clients because we've been so ingrained with this stuff. The cognitive dissonance is really hard to deal with. Mm. Yeah. And I think sometimes with somebody that's not in the medical profession, you can say something and actually it, it, does, it resonates with them that, yeah, that makes sense. I can get that they can get their head around it a lot easier than having been having it had it drummed in for work reasons that they probably find it harder to let go it's weird isn't it because um all of us health professionals have a have at least a basic understanding of the science and when you start explaining the science on the basis of the knowledge you know they already have you can see the light bulbs coming on and they're saying this is so obvious why didn't i know this it's because we're not taught it mm. and we're not taught the history of it. Yeah. So did you want to take us, yeah, did you sure. want to take us through some of the science of, I suppose, you know, fat? So when sure. we were talking last episode about carbohydrates, but um, so what is a fat and, you know, in particular, when we're talking about margarines, what the different types of fats are? Sure, sure. So I think we should possibly start with the macros then, um, proteins, carbs and fats. And my first point always is that we tend to obsess about the macronutrients. And actually, I, I obsess about micronutrients. So, you know, the way we tend to go is we first demonize carbs, then we demonize proteins, then we demonize fats, rinse and repeat. There are only three macronutrients. Uh, and I think currently we're demonizing carbs. Mm. And I think that's wrong. So I've demonized bad carbs. And I certainly think people with type 2 diabetes become carb intolerant and have to be very careful about their carbs. But one of my important messages is don't demonize complete food groups because there are good carbs and bad carbs and we don't want to throw the baby out with the bar, bar, bath water. Yeah. And of course, the same is true with proteins and the same is true with fats. And I think we all forget that calories is equal energy, but micronutrients equals nutrition. And I'm focused on nutrition. And I very rarely talk about calories. Um, we don't calorie, as you know, with prolongevity, we don't talk about calories at all. I think they're they're broadly speaking irrelevant in most in most cases. So good fats and bad cat fats. So again, back to our hunter-gatherers uh, who um who eat incredible amounts of saturated fat and had no cardiovascular disease they were slim they were fit they were muscular they were healthy they had good they were good teeth and that's true today as well if you follow the hadster for example um, and there are still uh tribes that lead this relative hunter-gatherer existence fewer now obviously than when western price was able to study study them 100 years ago but they're still out there so the tr the the fundamental difference is between omega-3 fats and omega-6 fats. Um, and without getting too deep into sort of uh, molecular biochemistry, the, the, the right amount and the natural amount. So both of these should be in our diet. So it's not, again, to demonize all omega-6 and say we should only be eating omega-3 fats. But it's the balance of the, it's the ratio of the two fats in the diet that are key. Hmm. And a natural diet is probably between 12 and 20 to 1 omega-3 in favor of omega-6. And a Western diet is probably the reverse of that. Yeah. And omega-3 uh, fats are the healthy fats. They're, they're the ones that reduce inflammation. And they're, you know, fat is really important to produce your cholesterol, to produce your cell membranes. There's a lot of fat in your brain. Um, and a lot of people suffering who are eating sort of modern diets have a lot less fat in their diet because they've been told to avoid it. And it's very fundamentally unhealthy. We need fat, right? Um, we can survive without carbs. Carbs are, uh, are optional. 
although I'm not demonizing them, we can't survive without proteins and fats, but we need the right fats. The omega-6 fats set up all the inflammatory pathways. And if you think about the common, the link between all these westernized diseases, um, again, I don't think this is spoken enough. We sort of see diabetes in one, you know, silo. We see cardiovascular disease in another silo. We see dementia in another silo and we see cancer in yet another silo. But they all have, they all have inflammatory aspects of them. And another key one that's really obvious pronounced at the moment is um, arthritis as well yeah so simultaneous so uh, so there are kind of two sets of diseases we've so far mainly talked about the non-communicable diseases so uh, just to go back a little bit so we're quite clear i can catch covid from you and you can catch covid from me that's a communicable disease as is flu right i can't catch cancer or dementia or diabetes from you so that's a non-communicable disease so we talk about that group of diseases uh, dementia cancer type 2 diabetes hypertension as a group Mm -hmm. but we treat them separately and then we've got and we've seen this astronomical rise in all of these diseases over the last hundred years so they're kind of westernized industrialized diseases they're brand new modern diseases Simultaneously with this massive increase in uh, non-communicable disease, we've seen a similar and parallel increase in so-called autoimmune disease. It's literally when the body starts to attack itself. And my point about that is two million years of evolution means at the end of it, evolution is so clever that we start to attack our own bodies. I don't think so. It's a new disease. It did these diseases again. Astronomical growth didn't exist 150 years ago. Uh, can't possibly be genetic because it's all happened too quickly. Must be lifestyle. So, you know, you can pick your autoimmune disease of choice. Jackie, you mentioned rheumatoid arthritis. You might have talked about type 1 diabetes. You might have talked about asthma. You might have talked about MS. You might have talked about any of these. Yeah. And again, so many of my clients have a non-communicable disease that's dominant. But then you ask, talk to me, say, yeah, I've got a bit of psoriasis, I've got a rheumatoid arthritis. No one's ever joined the dots for them that all these things are related. So they mm-hmm. just think they're genetically unlucky and predisposition has led them to be prone to diabetes plus psoriasis plus rheumatoid arthritis. And when they start the prolongevity, to their complete amazement, everything improves. Mm. let's kind of buy one get 20 free in in a good (laughs) way right and they say well how is this possible and i said well just remember what i said to you at the beginning that all these things do have to some extent a common cause now of course there is a genetic predisposition linked to it so just like we you know if we if all three of us smoked most it would massively increase our cancer risk but we wouldn't all get the same amount of cancer on the same day so there is a genetic overlay to it right so the genes make you susceptible to all these problems, yes. But some, so the genes might lower the gun, but the environment fires the gun. Mm. Yeah. So these so, two things go in parallel, and the causes are by and large the same, is my point. Yes. And now we just need to bring the awareness back to linking it to diet and lifestyle. Do you know, it is so Most, hard. Sorry. Most, I was going to say most people believe that it's genetic, it's hereditary, they're unlucky, it's bad yeah. luck. It's all these things that they have nothing to do with. You know, it's it's not me, it's my body. My body's breaking down. But your body doesn't want to break down. Your body wants to survive. Yeah, you're so right, Jackie. And, and the reason people believe that is because what that, that's what the health professionals have told them. Hmm. right and there's that book lies your doctor told you now i don't like those kind of titles because i don't want to undermine confidence between the medical professions and 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 the public no one's deliberately lying we're simply taught this stuff ourselves and then we trot it out and it's been if you could think of any of us myself tim noakes david unwin uh, Chris Kenobi, we've all come to this on our own separate individual journeys because we've all suffered somewhere along the line we followed the medical orthodoxy, which we understand rather well. It hasn't worked. And then we've gone searching for the t- truth. 
So we've had to sort of go back and find it for ourselves. Just imagine if all health professionals were taught this de novo as part of uh, pr pr professional training. So one of the things I'm now starting to crusade about within my own professional, within my own profession, is to, um, to get this training in the undergraduate years for pharmacy. Yeah. Well, that would be great. That would be a start, wouldn't it? Pharmacy, medicine, all, all health professionals should know this. And then we would, you know, we wouldn't need all these tablets. We need some tablets, but not as many. Yeah. But that, yeah. I was going to ask, um, apparently you can actually test for your omega-6 levels. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there are places that you can go. So the, o the omega-6, uh, it, it, it's much more insidious omega-6. So if you, let's suppose you eat a high-carb meal, right? It isn't particularly healthy, but within a few hours it's gone right? It's short term. I'm not recommending it, but you know, you get your sugar spike, it's gone within 12 hours. Yeah. Even if you have an oral glucose tolerance test, which is um, 75 grams of sugar in a drink uh, and you're susceptible, you'll, you'll, be, you'll bounce around for two or three days if you're susceptible, but then you'll, you'll go back to whatever is normal for you. The point about these uh, industrially processed um, omega-6 oils is that they accumulate in your fat. So it's a slow and insidious poison that, burn, that b builds up and builds up and builds up um, in you. But also it's there in the, in the animals we eat. So even if you, if you do eat, for example, a carnivore diet, which some of my clients do, um, I'm not particularly recommending it, but it's suitable for some people. If those animals have been fed the wrong food, not ancestral food, but they'd be at the, their factory farmed animals fed lots of this kind of, almost really cheap food uh, from a factory, yeah. that fat accumulates in the animal. You eat the animal thinking, well, I'm eating a nice healthy carnivore diet. Ah, uh -uh. <laughs> no, you're not. You're consuming the omega-6 fat that's accumulated in the animal when you eat the animal. So it's, it's a slow and insidious metabolic poison that builds up over time um, and probably takes a good six months to rid yourself of. So... I, the way I understand it is our body doesn't actually burn the omega-6. It's just stored in the fat cells. And yeah. it makes the, rather than producing more fat cells, it just expands the fat cells. And that's the bad thing. So you'd be better producing more fat cells than um, expanding them. And then I've heard that the half-life is about three years. Yeah. I mean, if... Uh one, if you uh, have a chance to view my video, uh, there's a little plate with ants on it, and I think there's um, some butter, some margarine, and one other form of fat. And all the ants have made their way to the fat. They ignore the margarine because they're sensible enough to know what healthy is. We make straight for the margarine. Mm. Um, yeah, <clears throat> I mean, you think about it, McDonald's, you can leave it out forever. It's never going to go off, right? Because <laughs> yeah. nothing else wants to eat it except a human being. Only a human being is nuts enough. So it's all about shelf life. Yeah. yeah. Um, a little anecdote. So um, just up uh, the road from my office is a little Tesco's. And I go there for my lunch. And I normally buy a salad, two or three different salads. Um, and I make myself a little lunch from it. Um, and I'll have um, salad with seeds. I'll put some avocado uh, or um, olive oil on it, and a bit of balsamic. So that's my basic. And then I'll have an avocado with it one day. Um, tuna the next day salmon the next day the fourth day i might have um salmon uh, um, chicken breast right what's yep. chicken breast going to have in it except chicken so yeah. i turn the back over of the chicken breast what's it got in it sugar, sugar and, seed and, and seed oil right Friday. right mm. why is the sugar there it's not there for to give it taste it's there because it's a humectant so it retains the moisture of the meat so it doesn't stale right? What's the seed oil there for? To stop it going off and prolong the self shelf life, right? So even something as fundamental as chicken breast has got sugar and seed oil in. I mean, you couldn't make it up. Yeah. So it's so hard to avoid the seed oils. It really is. And the chickens are fed foods that have corn. omega-3 in it. The, yeah. yeah, the corn and omega-3, omega-6 yeah. in it. Yeah. So yeah. your chicken has been fed these unhealthy things and then they put a pump a bit more into um, some sugar for good measure. So that even somehow they managed to get chicken breast to be unhealthy processed food. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's mad. Yeah. 
it's actually quite difficult in a supermarket if you're wanting to get lunch to find something that hasn't got seed oils, sugar and wheat in. Yeah, it is. There's very little there. Some salami Um, maybe and some olives. It's astonishing. I mean, you know, I, 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 um, being of uh, Jewish extraction, I like my hummus. Right? <laughs> you go into a supermarket and find a hummus that isn't at least got some seed oil in, right? So you go to somewhere quite poncy like Waitrose and they've got 30 different lots of hummus. They've got organic, French. It's all there. <laughs> Every single one, seed oil in. So now we have to make our own hummus. Yeah. It, it's... it's, it's it, Unlike, you know, in a sense, finding the sugar in the carbs is a bit easier because there's something on the front, something on the back, and it's once you get to recognise it, it's fairly easy. But it, it, the the prevalence, almost universal prevalence of seed oils in some shape or form in your breakfast cereal, in your bread, in your crackers, in all the foods that are you know promoted as healthy, in your protein shakes. Um, the latest, in fact, this is the latest thing you, uh, you may be aware of. This, the NHS is uh, currently, obviously, a, a, as a result of what happened to Boris, trying to get people to lose weight. So they're offering people these low-calorie shakes, and yeah. it's all about. It's mainly about calories in, calories out, and it's true. If you basically starve yourself for eight weeks, you will lose weight and you'll lose some fat, and that's not a bad thing. But it, it, you look at the way these shakes are formulated. High sugar, high carb, low fat, and guess what? Laced with seed oils. Mm. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, you asked me a question earlier on, Jackie, about getting tested. Yes, you can. Not on the NHS, but there are specialists who will uh, test your fat levels uh, and see what your percentage of omega-3 to omega-6 uh, is. So you, you can do that. And that may, may well be something you, you might consider. Hmm. So like Jackie's saying, you know, when we're going to the supermarket and um, eating out, obviously if we're eating out like fast food, as you mentioned about McDonald's and, and Burger King and KFC, you know, that would be pretty much seed oils, everything that's deep fried. Yeah, yeah but, and because uh, you get a double that, benefit, right? So you go to your local chippy, which cooks in seed oils. How many times has it been heated and cooled and heated and cooled and heated and cooled? So, and there's a there's another fundamental part of the science that we really should address here. So saturated fats means that all the bonds between all the carbons have got hydrogens. So there's no double bonds. Whereas the um, olive oil has got one single double bond. So that's what you call a monounsaturated fat. Um, Butter, lard. um, So the natural fats coming from either dairy or from animals are fully saturated which means that all the bonds between the carbon atoms are fully saturated. There's a, there's, there's a hydrogen on each bond. If that all sounds a bit complicated, what I'm, to simplify it, it means that the saturated fats are much more stable. So uh, these um, polyunsaturated fats are fundamentally unstable and extremely prone to oxidation. Yeah. So even if they're not oxidized in the factory before they're put in your bottle, you get your bottle home, it's, how, it's been sitting on a supermarket shelf for how long? Then it sits in your cupboard for how long, right? Then you open it, and as you gradually use it up, more and more air in the bottle equals more and more oxygen in the bottle equals more and more oxidation. Yeah. So now you're, uh, you're not just drinking omega-6 fat, you're drinking oxidized omega-6 fat. And oxidized omega-6 fat is a fundamental uh, disruptor of cellular processes it literally um the energy battery of the cell is something called the mitochondria which are quite fascinating the history of mitochondria is they were bacteria that we sort of swallowed and then they became integral parts of our of our cell mechanisms so just accept that the without going again too deep into the biology microbiology of this the mitochondria are the battery of the cell but they can't use omega-6 well, it, it, they are actually damaged by omega-6. Okay. So your ability to transport... So the mitochondria in the cell generate the energy on which is the energy of life. Yeah. So no, no mitochondria is no life. Omega-6, particularly oxidized omega-6, literally poison your mitochondria. So you're literally your ability to use energy in your individual cells is damaged and disrupted. Mm. 
that's as fundamental as that. So that's one aspect of it. The other one is oxidized lipids. So um, again, a little bit of basic science. Whatever comes out of the liver is fatty. And somehow you've got to get whatever the liver produces around the body to where it needs to go to do whatever it, it's, whether it's a nutrient uh, component, whatever. The bloodstream is watery. And we know that fat and water don't mix. Mm -hmm. so, you, so again, this incredible um, result of evolution is we've got these kind of transport mechanisms that transport the fatty output of the liver, uh, cholesterol, triglycerides, etc., round the body where it needs to go to be used up. And there's something called lipo lipoproteins. Yeah. And the lipoproteins can be likened to a submarine, if you like. So the submarine, the lipoprotein docks with the liver, you fill it with a cargo, it goes around the bloodstream to a docking station, and you've got specific docking stations on specific lipoproteins which discharge their cargo. They, they discharge the cargo to wherever they need to be, then they come back in the bloodstream to the liver for recycling. Fabulous, beautiful. I mean, it's, uh, the, the, it's absolutely uh, the complexity of it. The problems arise when your lipoproteins become oxidized and damaged, and then they hang around in the bloodstream for a lot longer. The body doesn't recognize them in the, in the usual way. And now you've got, it, it's, uh, the way I liken it is, imagine you've got, you, you, know, you know your new Ferrari, right? Instead of servicing it, you keep driving it. And eventually the oil becomes a bit sooty and a bit filthy and isn't functioning it so well. So now you can't get up the hill quite as, as fast, so you just put your foot down harder on the accelerator. Eventually that silt is gonna build up in the engine um, and cause oil, oil, oiling problems, and eventually your engine's gonna go pop, have yeah. a major, major issue, right? It may self-destruct completely, or it may be you can send it back and have your engine reconditioned, right? That's the equivalent of a heart attack. Mm. Pretty much the equivalent, right? So you get, inflammatory situations built up in the cardiovascular system then you get these inflammatory plaques one of the plaques breaks off floats downstream and it blocks a it blocks a blood vessel and depending on where it blocks it could be a heart attack it could be somewhere else um, and you don't really know about it so 50 percent of first time heart attacks are lethal hmm. so it's a bit too late by that stage when you've died a heart of a heart attack if you've if you have your heart first heart attack, it may well set some alarm bells, but a lot of damage has been done. Fundamentally, this is driven by all these inflammatory oxidative processes, which reside in partly a, a diet of sugar, but also very much a diet of these inflammatory seed oils, which disrupt the lipid transport, causing them to be oxidized, which in turn do the damage to the cardiovascular system. Hmm. So it's very complex science. I hope I've sort of simplified it in a, in a way that makes some kind of sense. Yeah. So ultimately, what can we do? Um, we're at Tesco's, we're reading labels, we're checking for canola oil or sunflower oil, those sorts of things in our food. Like Jackie said, you know, this does take a time to obviously rid ourselves of these particular um, omega-6s that are residing in our fat cells and our, yeah. inflamed, our very inflamed yeah. fat cells. So is there anything else we can do? Sure. So, um, I mean, healthy longevity is multifactorial, right? Um, so we're focusing on one thing today, but I think people, become, people get really obsessed about their one thing, whatever their one thing might be. Uh, and I take a much broader approach. So get plenty of decent sleep, really focus on your sleep, get the right type of exercise, make sure that you um, get sunlight when you can. Um, make sure that particularly vitamin D's and K's that you, that you supplement because in the UK everyone's short of vitamin D because you just can't get sufficient from the sun's rays and not many of us wander up the high street semi-naked so we're not likely to get sufficient of it right the next thing is initially I tell you it is really hard because you start thinking this happens to all my clients so I can't eat this I can't eat that what can I eat and they get really scared once they start to understand that there are tons of healthy choices um, and that the whole concept can be encapsulated in one uh, soundbite, eat real food, hmm. uh, it, it's, it's a lot easier. So um, I don't demonize carbs. I demonize the processed carbs, right? 
Um, I don't demonize fats. I just demonize the processed fats. So really it's about a educating yourself. And that takes a month. Maybe the next, to heart is, is to get you ignoring the front of the pack in the supermarket and bring the back of the pack over. And as Asim Malhotra always puts it, I mean, you can go deep into an overclassification of ultra processed foods. That's probably a discussion for another day. I like the way that Asim puts it, which he says, if you turn the back over and if there's more than five ingredients, some of which you've never heard of, put it back on the shelf. And that is a really easy, simple guide, I would say. Mm-hmm. And over time, you just get used to understanding the backs of the packs and navigating the supermarket shelves. And it's, a, it's probably a month or two of, 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 of finding what works for you. But in the end, you find actually there's a huge number of lovely, enjoyable foods that you can eat. And actually, the majority of my clients, far from feeling restricted because by what they can't eat, they suddenly feel, oh, so I can enjoy my butter. I can enjoy my red meat. All these things that I've been told that are not, not healthy, that I really rather love, all of a sudden I'm allowed to eat them. And actually their palate massively increases. And when they look back, they're eating probably more calories and a greater variety of really interesting food. And actually the, the industrialized, industrialized, industrially processed crap is just being forgotten about. So it's actually enabling, not disabling. But you have to navigate that kind of couple of months of the journey. Hmm. So are we really advocating for this grass-fed beef and and grass-fed sort of you know free-range chickens free-range eggs those sorts of things because obviously as you sort of mentioned about the cheap the cheap processed um grains that have fed obviously livestock particularly meat there's obviously still residing in the meat then obviously food quality becomes the question more so then it does so um what i always say to my clients is you'll end up eating less you'll end up probably skipping some meals. You may end up, a lot of my clients eating, end up eating one meal a day some days. So you're consuming 50% less food than you used to consume. So that money that you've saved, reinvest it in higher quality food. So it doesn't have to be massively expensive. So I, people have avoided red meat for years. I'm saying, well, if you, if you enjoy red meat, um, I'd rather you eat a healthy Uh, red meat once a week than an unhealthy meat red meat twice a week the other thing is offal because the most nutritious food of all and that's what the you know the hunter gatherers in us were designed to eat is is offal liver kidney brain uh, all those kind of meats that are very out of favor now and because they're so out of favor it's become the cheapest cuts of meat so the cheapest cuts of meat are actually the most nutritious ones and can be affordable and this is a very good resource. So if you look on the Public Health Collaboration website, there's a whole list there of um, meals that you can eat, which are really healthy, and even the price of the meals. So that might be something else you link to in the podcast. Okay. So yes, it's more expensive, but it doesn't have to be prohibitively more expensive. And absolutely, uh, the conclusion I've reached is invest in your health because you're going to have to pay for it one way or the other in the end if you get sick and ill how much is that going to cost you so i regard investing as healthy food as an investment in your health and your longevity and your well-being not just your physical well-being but your mental well-being Um, it's an investment to make but yes um, i look very carefully now if you can afford to eat organically which not everyone can i would encourage you to do so but you know if you buy um for example butter from grass-fed cattle, it's not going to cost you a fortune compared with the cheaper alternatives. And it's certainly going to do a lot more good than the um, margarines and all this industrial processed stuff. And there's one third point that I I must mention, which is the vitamin content. So the fat-soluble vitamins that we're all chronically short of, A, D, K, and arguably E, are found in the beef and in uh, fats and in the and in the butter they're not found in the seed oils so we're all chronically short of the fat soluble vitamins and guess what you can get them back into your diet so whatever you're spending on supplements you can probably reinvest that money in your food and that'll save you more so it's often a question of disinvesting in in stuff over here that you can reinvest over there net cost doesn't have to be that much more And is that the same with, sorry, is that the same with the omega-3 sort of, would you recommend supplementing with omega-3 
or just obviously primary sources like, you know, salmon yeah. and fish? Honestly, for most of my clients, and this is a very specific reason, I tell them not to waste their money. I'd rather them invest that money in better quality food. So I'm, I, there are two or three supplements I recommend. I do recommend an AD, uh, vitamin D and K. I do recommend magnesium because it's almost impossible, however well you eat, it's almost impossible to get those from the diet. Generally, for most of my clients, I stop there because I'd rather they spend their money on healthy food than on expensive supplements that end up being expensive urine most of the time. Mm. Do you think that being in the UK, because we have the NHS, and I think in Australia, do you have a healthcare system there? They've got a fabulous healthcare system. Do you think Which yeah. we those model, of us, and, and I think in, in Canada they have as well, do you hmm. think that people are less likely to take their health into their own hands because they don't have to pay for any health care? I don't think the evidence supports that. Actually, um, for example, if you look at America, where healthcare is mainly private, it's interesting. Per capita spend in America on healthcare is four times what we have in the UK. And they've got the world's 13th worst healthcare. Right. Okay. So the reverse is the case, actually, because they've all been convinced by big food um, to eat this, this rubbish. The Australian healthcare system is probably a discussion for another day, but Australian healthcare system is this mixed model. So it's a co-pay model. So it's not quite like the NHS. You have to pay out, but you reclaim a lot of the money. But actually, the evidence, because um, Australia is a massive place with a relatively small number of people, I don't think the NHS model would work particularly well there. They've got their own model, but it's a very effective model. But to your point, no, I don't think that's the case. Mm. What I think is the case is if we, got, if we got health professionals worldwide to understand the discussions that you and I are having, we would, all our health systems would be sustainable. Mm. I mean, currently, the, U, the UK uh, budget for health uh, system is £140 billion. Pounds. Yeah. And I think Public Health England gets four billion. So we're spending 99% of the money locking the door after the horse has bolted and only 1% of the money on trying to, on a proactive public health approach. And that's true of health systems worldwide. Yes. And when you get acute problems, what happens? They always raid the public health budget and invest it in the A&E department. It's happened again and again. Hmm. I think we're, we're all looking through the wrong end of the telescope. If you were to just get the current NHS educate the health professionals as, a, as an intention over the next 10 years who would in turn educate the patients. I guarantee you that NHS spend will go down and down and down. And actually a more fundamental point is we've kind of relayed, relied on health systems to extend, health, extend life expectancy, not necessarily healthy life, not necessarily healthy life expectancy. So we're, current, we're extending lifespan, but we're not expending, extending health span, hmm. both in the UK and America and in Germany, and that's now reversing itself. So we're actually seeing reductions in health span and lifespan, despite the massive increase in expenditure. So even on that fundamental premise, health systems are starting to fail. Yeah. Nothing short of a pandemic to expose some of these cracks in, in our healthcare systems in terms of access and equity. And, you know, and when we're really talking about this population health um, conundrum and really what you're talking in this metaphors of public health is this upstream. So as you're saying, we're going back to how we educate our health professionals upstream yeah. to be able to then educate the public. And ensuring that we have equitable access as well. So not just the education, but those access points in the community, you know, around that primary healthcare focus is really, it's really, it's really good. The one thing I would say about uh, the UK NHS system is equity of access is fantastic. I mean, it, it's not a problem in the UK. Yeah. And I don't, from what I can understand, it's not a problem in Australia either. It's yeah. certainly a problem in America. I mean, I'm on these, um, um, I, I'm involved in various uh, diabetes forums in the US, type 1 diabetics, type 2 who are on insulin. And I've, I've seen them saying, I dropped my insulin. I can't afford any more insulin. What am I going to do? Can you, can I, you know, have you got a little bit left in the bottom of your bottle, right? It would never be a thought, would it? In, in the UK, it's no. just not a conversation no. you'd ever no. have. No. You'd phone the doctor and they'd give you another prescription. So there you go. But mm. also the cost of insulin in America is like four or five times higher. Yeah. 
someone told me that in America, a lot of, especially in the northern part of America, they cross over into Canada to go and buy it because it's a quarter yeah. of the price. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's obviously, um, as you're sort of saying about Australia and they're not quite the mixed model of the US, the, pri- the principally private model in the US, mm. our mixed system, but it is, you know, we do have the universal um, program called Medicare, which is through our taxation, income taxation. So it is obviously was obviously modelled on, on the NHS mm. and was introduced by um, a Labor government in the 80s. So there are elements that we borrowed from the US and the UK. We have these particular influences. But um, you're right, you know, it's the same sort of thing when you see what happens in, in a private system like the US where they're having to... Medical bankruptcy is, is very prevalent. Absolutely. But Australia does have access issues. Um, obviously, our First Nations Aboriginal people um, have significant yeah. um, social cultural determinants, um, yeah. which prevents them in terms of their um, health inequities. You know, lower life expectancies, chronic diseases. You know, that's um, even though we have this system, it's obviously a Western medical model, which doesn't quite fit with some cultural groups sure. in, in Australia. So this, we do have some access issues. But, but it, again, the Aborigines have suffered they've clearly got a genetic predisposition to westernized industrialized diseases combined with the fact that they're socially there's a social uh, gradient as well so they tend to live in poverty and so it's much more accessible this cheap industrialized processed foods i would like to see all systems instead of subsidizing so much on healthcare why don't we spend more money and subsidizing these terrible uh, poisonous foods why don't we subsidize healthy healthy food for people and mm. make it accessible because we're going to pay the price at the, in the nhs system one way or the other yeah yeah and we look at those community food groups um did you see in um obviously during the pandemic with lockdown and um you know great charities you know fantastic you know the charity food groups yeah and obviously it was the pastas the rice the breads all those sorts of things ketchups you know those sorts of sources and those it's just like i know you're trying to do the right thing but i know you know, the one i'm just the one that really wound me up was crispy cream did you see that one so crispy cream donuts donated two thousand donuts to an nhs trust for the as a sort of little thank you for the nhs staff as they came off the covid wards right yeah um um, and I see Malotra, I had a real go about this because it was, it was just a cynical advertising ploy. And I put it like this. If uh, one of the big cigarette brands, let's say Marlboro Cigarettes, had donated 2,000 packs of cigarettes to NHS staff as they came off the ward, as a little way to relax after the stress of a ward, there'd have been a massive outcry. There should have been an absolute disgrace. No NHS trust would have accepted it, right? Yeah. Now you tell me what the difference is because I don't think there is much. And not a lot. Yeah. Oh, Johnny Walker, maybe <laughs> blue labels <laughs> the, for everybody coming the, off the wards. Yeah, there's even yeah. there's even a, a thought that the Johnny Walker would be better than the donuts Absolutely. and the cigarettes. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. A little tip of Johnny Walker isn't going to do you any harm. <laughs> maybe the whole bottle will. But anyway, that's <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Especially if they got to get back on <laughs> on on the ward in a few hours. So, Graham, before we wrap up. Um, do you want to tell people how they can find you on social media? Yeah, yeah. So um, my Twitter handle is at Graham S. Phillips, G-R-A-H-A-M-S-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S. Um, pro Longevity is at, pro, it's, it's like longevity with pro in front of it. Um, and the Twitter handle is at longevity underscore pro. Um, you could just Google me or have a look at our website, prolongevity.co.uk. Um, and also we have a Facebook group now called Wellness with Prolongevity. Great. Thank you. Louise, do you want to wrap us up with the last questions? Graham, we'd like to leave off um, and wrap up with your top three tips. And we'll focus on obviously, you know, getting that um, good, good fats. Yeah. So number one, get used to ignoring the front of the pack, which is just marketing. Look at the back of the pack. Mm-hmm is number one tip. Yeah, that's great. Right. Number two is get used to understanding and reading the back of the pack, which is where the real information lies. And number three, uh, so am I allowed four tips? 
<laughs> oh, go on. Can I cheat? Go on. Right. Just for you, Graham. N- number three, as I said earlier on, if you, if you look at the back of the pack and there are more than five ingredients, some of which you don't recognise, pop it back on the shelf. And if you want me to summarise the whole thing in one single, wo- single sentence, it's eat real food. Fantastic. Thank you. Graham, Thank you for joining yeah, us. Yeah, it's, lo- you know, it's lovely to, that you've joined us again. Um, we will have to get you back. I think on our <laughs> list last time we had um, a whole bunch of other, other topics. So uh, we will love to have you back again and have another focus session, a deep dive into no, happy to. It's been topic. A, it's been a blast. If you're happy to have me, I'm, I'm happy to come back. <laughs> That's fantastic. Lovely to see you both. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Well, Jackie, that was really fascinating. You know, the deep dive with Graham. He seems to be one of those genuine people with a font of knowledge. Yes, he's got a real curiosity and wanting to know more and and dive deeper to find out the where's and the why's. And especially the how. I think that's really important because obviously he has that science background, you know, being a community pharmacist that he's able to appreciate the science which obviously explains a lot about what what he's seen in his practice as well. Mm, yeah. And how, you know, he's wanting to educate other medical um, professionals to actually follow him and do those deep dives because it's not what they're taught. Mm, and that's a real challenge, obviously, against um, the standard, as you said, the standard of care at the moment. Yeah. All the standard recommendations, whether it's the eat well plate or the, um, you know, the, the pyramids of other other countries like in the US and Australia. So that will be a significant challenge. Yeah. And I think I understand that the scientific community want to um, focus on science based evidence, but I think anecdotal evidence is valid as well. It can be valid. And I think you have to maybe balance the two. Hmm. And we both know from our N equals one experiments and our lived experiences and, you know, the continuous nature of our tweaking as we, as we go with our eating, you know, we, we know that there are some things that, that work and some things that don't. But as you said, it's, it's a real tension between the N equals one versus obviously the evidence-based practice. Hmm. Yeah. And and as Graham said in his in his bio as well, that the NHS just has a one size fits all, but we're we're not a one size fits all. We're all very different and there are lots of nuances and part of it might be genetics, part of it might be um how you're brought up, nature and nurture, and part of it might be environment and we're all gonna be affected differently. And culture as well. Absolutely. And that, that brings an interesting point because obviously having lived in Australia and then last year in the UK and then now um, in Southeast Asia, it really has highlighted a lot of those factors. So I'm a perhaps engineered genetically for a Northern Hemisphere. That's why I love living in the UK. And that's really hard for me here in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, obviously the, the temperature is one thing that I'm still getting used to, but the food. Hmm. And Graham raised a really important factor about not everything here is labelled. So I can't go to my local, you know, the local Western supermarkets. Obviously those things are imported. But my local market is fresh. But I, I can't ask them, you know, oh, you know, is the chicken and pork primarily, is the fish, you know, about the sourcing. So I, I don't know. Hmm. Um it's not labelled in your Waitrose or Tesco's as grass-fed. So there's another thing is that obviously for, for our listeners that have travelled through Southeast Asia, food is cheap and delicious and it is cooked in seed oils. And I did really notice the problem eating out. You know, it was obviously the novelty of eating street food because it's cheap and tasty that my chronic pain condition from my motorcycle accident injuries really flared up. I was achy, um, my back was hurting. Um, I have been off 
paracetamol and ibuprofen for, for some time now that I had to go and take, you know, a couple of Panadol because I had this generalised pain, you know, that I was feeling. Yeah. As soon as I stopped, um, well, when we got our furniture, um, our shipment, and setting up my kitchen, and, um, yeah, so, again, I can take back control, you know, I, at least in buying fresh um, and seasonal produce and cooking um, in my own kitchen, you know, that in part I have at least seven-eighths or, you know, ten, eight-tenths eight of the, of you know, quality control oversight on, yeah. on what I'm eating on a daily basis. So now that you're cooking more at home, have you noticed the aches and inflammation going away again? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But that's not to say I'm going to live my life totally removed from, you know, eating delicious Thai street food. Uh, it's just obviously um, cognizant of the fact that if I'm going to be eating out, particularly street street food as opposed to restaurant food, um, where I can maybe be a bit more selective, maybe have something grilled or steamed as opposed to fried, mm-hmm. that um, it's not, not as bad, but you know, it is... Something that, as Graham was saying, you know, reading the packets, making sure that you're educating yourself and making those informed choices is, is really um, fantastic advice. Yeah. And Great e- take-home messages. Even though you're in Southeast Asia, I think the same applies here in the UK and probably in Australia as well, that the restaurants are using seed oils for everything that they do. It's cheap. They buy it cheaply. Quite often they can then recycle it and it um, goes on to make some biofuel. So so they get paid to do that. Um, I think we we just it's it's just everywhere. We have to just be aware mm. that it is everywhere, and the only way you're going to have real control is when you eat at home. So yeah, it is everywhere, and. Um, I may have mentioned this before, but two of the three uh, teenage or well, adult adult sons were working for Burger King or Hungry Jacks, and um, so they were telling me about the the fryer. You know that basically the the way that they clean the fryers and those sorts of things in, in fast food restaurants. You can't blame restaurants, especially fast food, in terms of wanting to have a cheap a cheap cooking stable oil for their. You know, for production, for mass production of food. No. But at home, you've got the control. Yeah. You can use, use the monounsaturated or the saturated um, fats, which are certainly better for our health in reducing the omega-6. Yes. So, Jackie, where can we get the show notes? So the show notes are at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 029. That's great. And we hope to get Graham back. Um, what were the other two topics? I think oh, we wanted to talk about well, microbiome three, and yeah. cholesterol. And cholesterol mm. and sleep. And sleep. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that he'll be entertaining. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jackie and I'm recording this in January 2021. And I've been on a low-carb or ketogenic diet for over three and a half years but I was concerned because I would still be considered obese and I still have a lot of fat around my middle and I was worried that this would affect my long-term health. Since we did this recording with Graham earlier in 2020, I decided to join Graham Phillips's Prolongevity program to find out exactly what was going on inside. So with Graham's guidance, I've made some changes to my lifestyle check my blood results and using a continual blood glucose monitor looked at how my blood sugar was affected by my diet and my lifestyle. By following the program with Graham I'm now really happy where I am. I know I'm on the right track and in the best possible place. If you're interested in Graham's program go to prolongevity.co.uk or click the link in the show notes. Graham also has an active Facebook group which you can join and join in the conversation, which is called Wellness with Prolongevity. And that link is also in the show notes. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com 
forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.